So it is, uh, it is October 12th, yes. 2016, yes. and I'm still here. So uh, what a beautiful message we have planned for you tonight. Uh, the message is called Covenant of Love. I just want to point out that this is the 19th anniversary of my ordination, and um, I'm getting old. Prior to that, there had been four years of uh, serious, intense study and a trip to Israel and a bunch of other things, uh, working alongside my pastor daily, and I'm thankful for that opportunity. But October 12, 1997, uh, began my launch into ministry. And I say that because so many of you in here are being launched into ministry. Tonight, I'm going to cover things that are personal to my heart. Um, things that I hope will bless you in every way, and maybe even a few that you, you don't know. Is that all right? Okay, so let's begin in Revelation 1, 5 through 6. It's at the bottom of the screen here. Uh, we're going to camp in a few passages tonight, but most of our messages will be on the screen because of the rate at which we are going to move. Uh, it says, Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us. Say, has freed us. Freedom. Has freed us from our sins by his blood. Listen, he did not come just to forgive your sins. He came to free you from the power of sin. And has made us to be a kingdom of priests. To serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Is it your desire to be completely free, to be full of power, and to be a priest? Yes. It's just the center of the room or both sides as well? Yes. Seven times in the Bible, God describes His covenant to His people as a covenant of love. I couldn't say that enough because I've never heard it said anywhere else. Uh, all of these slides are going to be placed online. Those of you that check that regularly, you'll be able to find them there. I want to read to you out of Deuteronomy 7 in verse 9. And it uh, starts here. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping His covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love Him and keep His commands. Keeping His covenant of Keeping his covenant of seven times. Deuteronomy is in the law. Kings is in the prophets. Chronicles and Nehemiah and Daniel are in the writings. Over and over and over, the Bible refers to the Mosaic covenant as a covenant of what? Many, many years of preaching and teaching have caused uh, the Mosaic covenant to be viewed as something other than a covenant of love. Our king has not changed. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if the word says it's a covenant of love, friends, that settles it. It really doesn't matter what men say. Seven times the Mosaic covenant is called a covenant of love. I want to go through with you seven months, because we are now in the month of Tishri in Israel, and seven feasts of the Lord that are called sacred assemblies. 
the first month of their year. It didn't used to be the first month, but it became the first month of the year at Passover. God changed their calendar. There was a new beginning. Can you imagine if we were in July and somebody said, okay, now July is the first month of the year. How that would work for you? Well, in Noah's day, uh, Tishri and Nisan were swapped, actually. But during the um, Mosaic time period, as Exodus 12 changed the calendar, Nisan began the first month of the religious year. It says, this month is for you to be a first month. And this is where Passover, unleavened bread, and the Feast of first fruits occur. We'll cover more of what they mean later. But in the very first month of the year, God had uh, three feasts that he called sacred assemblies. When you see the word sacred assembly, I put it on the screen for you. It's Strong's number 4744, Mikra. Mikra is something called out, a public meeting. But it is also a rehearsal. The word was pregnant with meaning. And their year started off rehearsing certain things. So they were going to begin their year by being covered in the blood of a lamb, having their whole household covered in the blood of a lamb. Is that a good thing to rehearse? Then they were going to practice what became known around the world as spring cleaning. Um, In Germany, it's Spermulen. And so many parts of the world, all over Europe, this practice still exists. But it began in uh, Egypt during the Exodus. During the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which overlaps with Passover, you had to clean your house. You had to go through it and get rid of everything that was uh, a contaminant. Then you moved on to first fruits, where you brought something from your fields to the Lord. All of that happened in the first month of the year. In IR, there would be nothing. You would simply be counting the dates. It's an interesting thing. You'd be counting the weeks because from Passover to Shavuot, the the Feast of Weeks, what you would have is uh, a total of 50 days or seven weeks. From the moment you were born again, the moment that you began being sanctified, the moment that your faith produced fruit, you would be counting the days until you were empowered by God to work in the harvest. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised. In the third month of the year, they would celebrate this, and it was the same time period that they got to Sinai. Same time period that there was revelation uh, from God. The the, uh, commandments were revealed to the people. And then you entered into Tammuz, Av, and Ul. Everything bad that happened in Israel's history happened in the month of Av. But we won't go over that. It's just notice that between the third month and the seventh month, of course, there are three months. And what's dead in the center of it? Av. This time period from Tammuz, Av, and Ul, with Av being the center, this was the toughest time in Israel. It was the longest stretch between feasts. It was the most difficult time. You're moving into the fall, the uh, great harvest days, are over, and it represented the darkest time. There was no rehearsal during this time period. There was no feast during this time period. And you were waiting for something to happen. Tishri began, the month began with a trumpet blast. 
It became the head of the year. It was once their January, so to speak. It was once the first day of their year, and now it's not. Now it's signaling the end of God's plan. And Rosh Hashanah is the Feast of Trumpets. So you'd go through this long period where there were no feasts. You'd go through this long period where temples had been destroyed in Israel's history. Long periods that signaled your defeat, your destruction, the worst anniversaries you could have all happened in that fifth month. And you were waiting for something. You were waiting for a trumpet to blow. That trumpet was a global proclamation. It was to ring out into all the world that certain things were going to happen. Most of all, that Yom Kippur was coming. Yom Kippur was the feast where every single Israelite got right with God that day. If you didn't get right with God that day, you no longer belonged to Israel. Everyone who was in Israel got saved on that day every year. Can you imagine the intrepidation that you might feel as you were coming close to it, though? The weight of your nation's sin. Does anybody feel the weight of our nation's sin tonight? We murder babies at a faster rate than anyone else in the world. We produce more pornography than anyone else in the world. Our drug use is higher than anyone else in the world. We spend more money on dog food as a nation than we do on foreign missions. Does anybody feel the way? Has anybody looked at our political process and said something is terribly wrong? The next feast in the seventh month was Sukkot. Sukkot, we will go into some more in another slide, but it was the seventh feast and it happened in the seventh month. This formed the basis of Israel's religious calendar. How many of you know what month Christmas is in? How many of you know what month our Independence Day is in? What's wrong? Why y'all don't want to speak? Do you know when Independence is? Call it out. Okay, it's not Cinco de Mayo, even in South Texas. The reason that I'm saying that is Israeli children knew this. How, how many of you in school, right, you get to Thanksgiving and, and you're excited because you know if you can make it two more weeks, you have a big Christmas break, right? Semester's over. You get kind of a fresh start. Take your beating for those grades and press into the new ones. I mean, the, the point is this formed the structure of their society. These feasts were supposed to build to a climactic point, okay? Pesach is essentially about salvation. Unleavened bread is essentially about the process of sanctification in your life. When you receive the blood of the lamb, you began searching your house. You didn't receive the blood of the lamb and say, now it covers everything in my house. You didn't receive the blood of the lamb and say, now I'm good in my house. The blood of the lamb was the triggering thing that caused you to search your house. During first fruits, this was the fruit of your faithful deeds. You would bring something that represented the best of all of your work unto the Lord. Shavuot was about an empowered harvest. Pentecost is not so that you can just speak in other tongues. Pentecost happened so that you could have an empowered harvest. The Feast of Trumpets, or Rosh Hashanah, was about global proclamation. It was to let the whole world know something was going to happen. That's because Yom Kippur was about Israel's salvation. Have you ever read in Romans 11 
that if their rejection meant for us life, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? The reason that trumpets would blow in Israel and announce to the world that the Day of Atonement is coming is because so as it goes with Israel, it will go with the rest of the world. See, the rest of the world cannot be saved unless Israel is saved. So it was a good sign to the whole world that salvation was working in Israel that gave the Gentile world hope. Are you following me so far? Y'all are very quiet tonight. Do I have your full attention? I'm going to do some things to keep your attention tonight. We'll see what happens as we move forward. Seven times in the Bible, there is a heavenly pattern confirmed. Seven times you see this. Uh, I'm going to look at Exodus 25 and read it to you just as a way to remind you of that. In Exodus 25 and starting in verse 9, make the tabernacle and all of its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Exodus 25 and 40. See that you make them according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. You can do this and demonstrate in seven places in the word. God said through his holy word that what was being built on the earth is an exact pattern of what was in the heavens. How many people are sure that their lives exactly represent what was determined in the heavens? Be careful how you build. It'll be tested with fire, Paul said. And if what you have built survives, then you'll have a reward. But if it doesn't survive, not because you didn't try to build, but because you did not build according to the pattern, you would pass through the flames as one escaping but naked. How serious then is it how we build? Day of Atonement as it approaches approaches was a time when you could consider what your life was building towards. Are you sitting in here tonight and you're happy with what you're building towards? Or are you concerned that it may not match the heavenly pattern? The Day of Atonement was a day that would bring you to reckoning with those thoughts. The most described item in all of the Bible, I mean, when you think about it, creation itself, how the world and the stars and uh, the heavenly beings and all of the fish and all of the genus, species, kingdom, phylum, all of those things that exist on the planet, how they came into being is described in two chapters only. Noah's Ark, the saving vessel of the entire world, one chapter in the Bible. That's, that's what it gets. Its construction gets one chapter. Solomon's temple, nine chapters. Ezekiel's temple, seven chapters. Zerubbabel's temple, four chapters. You could take a structure like the Tower of Babel that was worldwide antichrist spirit, a whole rebellion against the world. It gets about one quarter of one chapter. But the tabernacle, the meeting place between God and man, it gets 16 chapters in the Bible. We could make an argument that you could remove two of them because they're about the golden calf. But 10, 10 chapters to the construction and furnishing of the temple. One, dedicated to the men who were anointed to build it. Two, to the priests who were anointed to staff it. One, to the new tablets that would be at the center of God's throne inside of it. 
Any way you look at it, you have 14 chapters dedicated to nothing but how the tabernacle operates. There's a reason. That's because Exodus 25, 8 says, Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Let's not treat that as if it's a small thing. How many of you in this room live with another family right now? You could consider that a blessing or a curse, depending on how you relate to that family, I imagine. But what would it be like to have God come and set up residence at your house? Now, as Christians, sometimes we trivialize this. We're like, well, we're all temples of the Holy Ghost. I'm not so sure about some of you. Others, I can see the Holy Ghost in. We, we treat this as a small thing. God dwelt with Israel in a way that the nations could see that he was with them. Does he dwell with you in a way that people can see it? Let, let's, uh, let, let's move forward. And I'm going to come back to that significance because that's a pretty amazing thing. Let's look at this. You have been told in foundations type studies many, many times now. I've drawn it on the boards over and over and over how Israel encamped. In the second chapter of Numbers, God tells them where to encamp. And he takes Judah and he puts him on the east side. But he also puts Issachar and Zebulun with him. He takes Reuben and puts him in the south. But he puts Gad and Simeon with him. If you try to figure this out through just deductive reasoning, it won't work. It's not based on their birth order. It's not based on who shared the same mother. It's not based on any of those things. God himself designated it when you look to the west and you see Ephraim Benjamin went with him Manasseh went with him when you look to the north and you see Dan Asher went with him and Naphtali went with him you've heard from me before that their tribal standards were the same as the faces on the living creatures that form the throne of God Judah is a lion uh, Reuben is a man Ephraim is an oxen and Dan is an eagle. Those are the faces of the living creatures. There was something being communicated here because God was going to dwell with them. And when you looked at their names together and you read them, may he be praised. Behold, the son, doubly blessed, he that judges has come. It, of course, speaks about Jesus. There's no new news there. You've heard that. For, many people listening may not have heard it, but you get that kind of stuff regularly but the reason that he put every person in the place that he put them was because he wanted to dwell there and there was a pattern that had to be matched exactly so when you looked at this on the earth that means that god dwells in a similar fashion in the heavens that's an interesting thing we're going to come back to that let's move forward here this is a close-up of the diagram that is the tabernacle now, if you wanted to think about this entire white block here, it's about the size of a Dollar General store. How many of you have been to a Dollar General? How many of you are lying? Dollar General. If you wanted to consider about the size of the holy place and the holy of holies, it's a single wide trailer. It's about 45 feet wide. I'm sorry, 15 feet wide. 45 feet long. The first section is two-thirds, and the last section is one-third. So the holy, holy, holy of Holies is a perfect cube. It's 15 by 15 by 15. If you were going to build a structure and you were God, wouldn't you build it bigger than a 
single wide trailer? My wife refused to live in one when we got married. She said, you will not make me the queen of a single wide trailer. It's not going to happen, right? Uh, God lived in a space that was that size because he wanted to represent to the people something very special. Now, we wouldn't do it, but he did. Does that say something that's different about what God values and what we value? How many of you like your stuff in a certain place? Okay. I, I love our home being open. I'm going to let you in on a small frustration. Maybe it'll even fix it. Pastors can complain from the pulpit and call it preaching. I share everything in my life. There's, uh, there's no area of our house that is uh, off limits to anyone. I, in fact, on a, on a Monday night, it's not uncommon to have two children in our bedroom that aren't ours, one in the closet and one in the bathroom by the uh, bathtub trying to sleep. All right, We're, because people are over late. That's a, that's a normal thing. The one thing in my life that I try to keep organized a certain way is my desk. And um, every single Monday night, even if I block it off, no matter what I do, everybody removes the obstacles, gets in my desk, and the next day, whatever was precious to me cannot be found. It's, it's, it's gone, right? God says... When I dwell among them, it must look this way, period. Now, you can get away with moving, moving my stuff. But when God's people are not in the place that they're supposed to be, he simply will not dwell with them there. See, we have the idea that he will go with us wherever we go. That is not correct. Ask Joshua when he talked to the commander of the Lord's host. When you are where he told you to be, he will dwell with you. He does not follow you like your genie. You follow him as you the servant and him the master. What we learn from something like this, let's, let's lay them over each other. That's the next slide. What we learn from this is that when you move through the gates of praise, which are in the east by Judah, interesting that the gates of praise are right next to the tribe whose name means praise and you come to the brazen altar this was a time where you were reflecting upon your sin and your guilt the the bronze altar is defined size wise in scripture you would then come to the laver which is not defined size wise in the scripture in solomon's temple we have a wait for it but nobody knows what the dimension of this is at the tabernacle almost as if we knew that the word could clean you but we didn't know how much it was going to take to get you clean. But how much ever it was, that's how much would be available to you. You would move on from the labor into the holy place. We've talked about this a lot in messages like right and left, where on your right as you walked in, there would be the lechem uh, ponim, the bread of his face, the bread of his presence there. It would be there to feed you, to fill you. It would be something that God himself was blowing on right there. On your left would be the sevenfold menorah of God. It would be beautiful. But what you were facing at that point is an altar of incense. That altar of incense represented your prayer rising to the Lord. Do you know why? Because on the other side of the curtain in a room with no natural light, God himself dwelt. Now, 
What is it? Is it impressive to you? Hey, anybody remember those? Uh, uh, well, this generation probably remember MTV Cribs, but I remember lifestyles of the rich and famous with a strange little British guy named Robin. And um, Robin Leach, that's right. And I was amazed, the kid in South Louisiana. I, I'm getting to see how people live, right? And uh, how they live didn't look like how, how I live. And the idea was that you were supposed to be envious. Wouldn't you think if you saw God's dwelling, it would just dwarf yours? If you saw God's dwelling, you'd be like, oh, man, I got to get out of my trailer and into whatever God's doing. He lived in a 15 by 15 cube. You ever complain that you work in a cube farm? So did God, right? Little room dividers. There's not much else there. I'm not meaning to demean this. I'm saying there was no beauty or majesty to draw you to it. That's not what made it special. The dimensions didn't make it special. The size didn't make it special. Constructed of ordinary animal skins didn't make it special. Unless you considered that something so plain and so ordinary filled with the very presence of God was special because of the presence of God. If God was going to dwell there, if his throne was in the center of the Holy of Holies, what you can do then is you can look to the north, to the south, to the west, to the east, and you can see what God's pattern in the heavens is. You can look at what he built on the earth and say, if this is a mirror reflection of what is in the heavens, what does that tell us? Are you tracking with me at all? Yeah. You following me so far? Yeah. Let's go to Leviticus 16.1 and we will hop into that subject deeply. Say there when you were there. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord. Can anybody just shout out why the two sons of Aaron died? They offered unauthorized fire. Do you know that there's nobody in all of the world that knows what that means? Now, you'll find three or four messages through the years that I've preached on it. You'll find some others have preached on it. These are us telling you what we think it means. The truth is nobody's really sure exactly why they were struck dead except that they did not keep to the pattern that God established. Maybe it's that simple. Maybe what was unauthorized about it was that it was not on a prescribed day and at a prescribed time. I've met more people that have tried to relate it to alcohol and I won't go into that. I'm simply going to say it could be any number of things. Specifically, the Bible says they offered unauthorized fire. The Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron not to come whenever <clears throat> he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark. Does it sound like the problem has to do with a nonchalant approach to the Lord? Like it's a trivial thing for a human being to walk into the very presence of God? Or else he will die. Because I appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. Let's, let's try to wrap our minds around this in very real 
uh, American terms, if we set 10 days a year where you couldn't do anything but have introspection, sit and consider your ways, would people go insane just because they couldn't use their phones? Just because they couldn't use their uh, uh, internet? Couldn't use their TVs? When's the last time you went three days with absolute blackout of all things? For 10 days prior to the Day of Atonement, the people began reflecting upon their community sins. As a people, the ways that they had let down God. What they had done that year that might be displeasing to God as a people. For 10 days, each person personally reflected upon their own life. Not just what we all have done, but what I did that caused these problems. This is prior to the Day of Atonement. They got ready to have God dwell among them. There was a preparation process. And God tells the priesthood, I'm going to appear at a specific place, that 15 by 15 cube behind the curtain. I'm going to appear at a specific time. It's going to be right after Rosh Hashanah in the month of Tishri. It has to be on the 10th day, period. You, if, if you tried it on the 8th, it wouldn't work. If you waited till the 20th, it wouldn't work. It has to be on the 10th of Tishri. He appeared to a specific people. God himself handpicked out of all the nations of the world the one that he said was the weakest, the puniest, the most insignificant. And he said, those are the ones I'm going to appear to. All of this is leading towards something. There is a prescribed way in which we have to approach the Lord. Can we say that sometimes we charismatics have made it just um, a little too flippant? Consider for just a second that I don't know. You were going to meet the king of Siam or Norway's president or Germany's chancellor. Are you most likely to go in a pair of flip-flops, cut-off jeans, and a wife beater? Is that what you're most likely to do? You can answer me in here. Is that what you're most likely to do? Why not? Why is it disrespectful? I mean, it's just what you like. Because out of reverence or deference to the position that those men hold, you don't want to act as if you were taking that meeting lightly. How many of you showed up to your last interview in a bathing suit? If you did, leave the church now. There's a reason that we wore certain attire to certain things. If, if you've ever watched Latin America, they do not come to church for the most part without dressing to the hilt. And there's a reason for it. They see it as a sign of respect. Here, we tend to be a little more laid back in our dress, except for Curtis and Mary. They got it going on, you know. And I'm not picking on you for the way you dress. Look at me. I've only dressed this way always. There is nothing else. I own four pairs of jeans. You, you see the six or seven shirts I have. You, you see them. And those, most all of them, Steve bought me. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is that there is a protocol when meeting with the King of Kings. And we have to find out what that protocol is. I'm going to read to you a letter. This is the letter of Aristius. 
It comes from 250 BC. I have all of this source material going online for you and the original work sitting on my desk right now. A guy named R.H. Charles edited it for Oxford and put it in the Clarendon Press in 1913. So this is a letter from 250 BC. We were greatly astonished when we saw the mode of his dress and the majesty of his appearance, which was revealed in the robe he wore and the precious stones upon his person. There were golden bells upon the garment which reached down to his feet, giving forth a peculiar kind of melody. And on both sides of them were pomegranates with very variegated flowers of a wonderful hue. He was girded with a girdle of conspicuous beauty, woven in the most beautiful of colors. On his breast he wore the oracle of God, as it is called, on which twelve stones of different kinds were inset, fastened together with gold, containing the names of the leaders of the tribes. According to their original order, each one flashing forth in an indescribable way in its own particular color. This is how a man that saw these next few verses we're going to read described them to his friends back home. This is uh, Leviticus 16 and verse 3. This is how Aaron is to enter the sanctuary area. With a young bull for a sin offering, a ram for a burnt offering, he is to put on the sacred linen tunic with linen undergarments next to his body. He is to tie the linen sash around him and put on the linen turban. These are the sacred garments. So he must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. From the Israelite community, he is to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Listen, this shocked the man who saw this happen in 250 BC to the point that he writes about it like this. Now, the last thing that he mentioned that is underlined here is the high priest had 12 stones on his chest. The Bible says it. Aristius confirms it. Josephus had something to say about this. In Antiquity of the Jews, Book 3, Chapter 7, this is a direct quote. And for the 12 stones, whether we understand them by the months or whether we understand them like the number of the signs of the circle, which the Greeks call the zodiac, we shall not be mistaken in their meaning. Josephus, a man in Jesus' day, says, you know those 12 stones that are on the high priest's chest that we all see uh, when he wears that garment? They stand for the months and what the Greeks call the zodiac. Now, what do the Greeks call the zodiac, friends? Constellations, stars. There are 12 signs in that zodiac. The Hebrews call it a Maseroth. 12 specific groupings of stars in the heavenlies. Just like God put 12 specific groupings of his people on the earth. The high priest had 12 tribes on his chest. When you say that God is in the highest heaven, when you say the most high, to the Hebrews there is a sky realm, there is a starry realm, first heaven, second heaven, and a third heaven that is something beyond that. But when God began to put an image on the earth in exact pattern, they began to understand what that was. He said, wow, he wants to be enthroned right here in the center of us. He wants our tribal standards to have 
a lion, a man's face, an oxen, and an eagle. He wants there to be 12 specific groupings of people ordered in a way that he said that, and then he will show up for us on a specific day. When men have seen into the heavens, did they see four living creatures with the faces of a lion, uh, a man, an oxen, and an eagle? Did they see God sitting on a throne? They saw him in the heavens surrounded by those 12 constellations. There's a reason for this. There is a kingdom that we call there, and God wants to set it up right here. But he has a building plan to do that. And it starts with his people following an exact pattern and an exact protocol. And the more closely we reverence it, the more seriously we are taking his kingdom. Are you beginning to understand what is so offensive about a circus church? What is so offensive about those that do not take the pattern seriously? Let's go back to the letters of Aristius. On his head, he wore a tiara or a crown, as it is called. And upon this, in the middle of his forehead, an immutable turban, the royal diadem of full glory with the name of God inscribed in sacred letters on a plate of gold. Having been judged worthy to wear these emblems in the 99 ministrations, their appearance created such awe, say awe, and confusion of mind as to make one feel that one had come into the presence of a man who belonged to a different world. Now, let's try to grab hold of this. Let's consider for a minute that Justin is writing back home to his people in Opelousas, and he's trying to describe the way in which Curtis Carter walked in the building. And he said, you never saw a shirt and a tie that looked like this. It caused awe. It caused confusion of mind. It looked like somebody stepped off of another planet and onto a stage. You'd say he's exaggerating, wouldn't you? Not if you knew Curtis Carter. Look, the point here is we're reading a man's letter. We're reading a letter that is 2,200 years old. But the way that this appeared to someone who was there and watching was like somebody stepped from another dimension right into this one and it caused confusion of mind. He said, I am convinced that anyone who takes part in the spectacle which I have described will be filled. Say filled. Filled with astonishment and indescribable wonder and be profoundly affected in his mind at the thought of the sanctity which is attached to every detail of the service. How did you describe your last church trip? Do you think we take the presence of God just a little too flippantly? This guy was blown away at the, at the way that God's presence showed up with his people. He couldn't, could you find any more creative language to describe it? Could you show any more enthusiasm than what we see written in this letter? You know why? It's because he's encountering it for the first time. Man, I remember when I got filled with the Holy Ghost. I came home, I was talking to Jen. I was talking about Miss Joe and a woman named June Newman. And I said, Jen, you don't understand. They're glowing. They're beautiful. I mean, they're ordinary ladies, but they, I mean, they're beautiful. It's like angels. 
I had never seen people that were beautiful because of their deeds. I had never seen people that had that inward beauty that Peter spoke about. Prior to that, I had only been born again about a month. I had only known one kind of beauty, the kind that stinks and fades after a while, the kind that is done when you're done with it. See, Aristius encounter something that is off-world. It's, it's not corrupted. It is beautiful. It's like somebody extended from that realm right into this one and gave the world hope. Am I catching anybody's attention yet? There's a little something outside I think we ought to get. Uh, let's go back to Exodus 16. In Exodus 16, pick up with me in verse 6. You've seen the door open before. Verse 5. From the Israelite community, he is to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin offering and make atonement for himself and his household. Then he is to take two goats. How many goats? And present them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. He is to cast lots for the two goats. One lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it as a sin offering. Go back with me to verse 5. From the Israelite community, he is to take two male goats for a sin offering. We're going to have... Two goats here, but it only comprises one sin offering. In Leviticus 14, when you were wanting to be cleansed of leprosy, does anybody remember the sacrifice for that? It's an interesting one. (coughs) You would take a bird and some hyssop, actually two birds and some hyssop in a bowl. You would wring one of their nets pour his blood into the bowl. The other bird, you would dip into the bowl, put scarlet yarn on him, and set him free. Think about that for a minute. What would all of Israel be looking at then? Israel would be walking around seeing a bird flying around covered in another bird's blood, seeing scarlet yarn on him. There would be a symbol of one who carried life because another died. Are you with me here? One carried the death of the other around with him, offering life. Wow, Bubba's back, and he's bigger than he used to be. Let me see Bubba for a minute. Bubba's been angry today. It's okay, Pastor. I got it. I've been dealing with goats a long time. (laughs) And it's best just to get hold of their head and take them where they need to go because they don't know where they should go. Is there somebody with pastor outside? Yeah, go help pastor. It'd be all right. Can you imagine that the goats didn't like this a whole lot? You know what? We got a couple young ministers in here. You're going to have to learn to do this. Nick Aragina, would you come handle this goat? It's going to be important. Now, you can see he gets angry. There you go. Now watch Nick struggle with that goat a little bit. (laughs) 
anybody who's ever ministered very long can only handle so many goats at one time. You're beginning to feel my particular lot in life? After you've been doing it a while, you might even get a little bit abrupt. You might not want to give them too much slack. If you give Bubba here too much slack, Bubba gets to putting his horns to everybody else. Bubba gets to knocking people down. Now, this is his brother, Buford. (laughs) Buford's had some of the fight taken out of him. He'd been a goat a little bit longer. We got him from an African food mart. We'll raise money with Sarah McLaughlin singing in the background in a little while to save the goat's lives. It's probably best if we have another young anointed minister come learn to wrangle goats. Judah Stevens, why don't you come over here? Yep, call out, Buford. Call out. Save me. So what do we have to do according to Leviticus 16? We got to flip a coin. Anybody got a coin? Is there a coin in the room? All right, if you got a $100 piece, I'll take it. If you only got a quarter, I'll take that too. Throw me a coin. Oh, and you put it in your pocket. We're going to talk about Ananias and Sapphira in just a little while. Should you find money on the floor, there is a box in that corner. Now, on this side, we got Bubba. And on that side, we got Buford. We got to see where the coin falls. Unfortunately, Bubba, you're going to have to give your life. Bubba's going to have to die. Yeah, I know, Buford. That's, uh, that's good news, isn't it? <laughs> Bubba's got to die because of what you did. Now, you're really sorry, right? How sorry? Hmm? Hey, Sakola, come here for a minute. Bubba's got to die. And uh, somebody has to do this. You, that's not appropriate. Hold on. I agree. It's not appropriate we kill an animal with a pocket knife in church. Anybody wants to help? Anybody's looking forward to this? No? Hannah. Come on up here, Hannah. <laughs> Hannah, for something to live, something else has to die. Come on up here. You can sit down. We'll, we'll let Hannah do it. You look forward to this, Hannah? Look, what you're going to want to do is you're going to want to grab Bubba by his chin right here like this and just stand over him like Nick and just pull that knife right through, okay? okay. It's concrete, so when the blood pours out, well, we can walk through it to the communion table. How about that? Okay. Y'all pray for Hannah while she does this. It doesn't seem right, does it, Bubba, that you would live while, or Buford while Bubba does? Why are you going so slow, Hannah? No? One, one of the men wanted to do it. Is that what it is? No? Why not? 
Josiah, would you like to do this? No. No. You can sit down, Hannah. Why don't you want to kill this animal? You can talk to me. You can tell me. Why don't you want to kill him? Because why? It's innocent. You know, in, in our society, this is, uh, this is shocking. This is shocking. As we come to him to do this, everybody begins to want to turn away. You don't when you go buy a hamburger. How many of you have eaten steak at my house? We're used to living because something died all the time. We've just taken it so for granted because the knife's not in your hand. But what if the knife is in your hand? See, for God to meet with his people, he required for something innocent to die. Y'all begin to relax because you don't think I'm going to do this, huh? Chloe, come on down here. We'll get it done. Come on. Honey, what you're going to want to do is just straddle him and use two hands and pull that straight into his throat, okay? What's wrong, baby? Can't do it. You can't do it. Why not? I'm scared. You're scared. It's okay, honey. So who wants to do it? You going to stand by and watch the girl do it? Who, who wants to put the knife in the innocent animal? Because God won't meet with you otherwise. We'll take him out to the truck, and we'll do it in the truck so they don't have to watch. We'll have Cabrito after the service. Now, if you're Buford, you're pretty happy. No, Buford's going to stay for a while. You get to wrangle goats just a little while longer. Because something's going to happen here. It turns out that the word scapegoat, we can put Leviticus 6.16 on the screen. The word scapegoat is a Hebrew word that is compound. It's az and then azel. Azel. So sometimes in our Marvel comic driven world, what we have is a name that people say. And they say Azazel. Azazel is not correct. I have said for years, Azazel. That's three syllables and it's not quite correct. What you call this animal in Hebrew is an Az. When we get things rebooted and all, you'll see that on the screen. When you want to say take away in Hebrew, it's A-Z-A-L, Azel. So we have an Oz, a goat, that Azel takes away. That is translated as scapegoat. Now, which would you rather be, anybody? Would you rather be the goat that gave its life? Do you have that slide, sweetheart? The slide is titled Leviticus 16.6. The, um, the goat that gives his life, which we have out in the pickup truck right now being slaughtered, he is there to bring remission of sins. But there is a goat that is there to carry your burdens as well. 
what you see in those two windows there is highlighted the uh, Hebrew, a alf, I'm sorry, not an alf, an ayin and a zayin for the word goat. Sometimes that, that is easy instead of easy. Do you see it in the top bubble? Towards the right side, goat. In the bottom bubble, azel, A-Z-A-L, to go away. These came from Bible dictionaries. This goat that we're looking at is the az that is going to azel, take away your burden. Which goat would you rather be? Which one wants to be slaughtered right now for the remission of sins? No? That means all of you would rather walk around carrying the burden of sins. Hmm? Which is it? You're looking for a third candidate, aren't you? Aren't we all? It's late October. There is a testimony in both goats. That testimony has to appear in you. The testimony goes something like this. One goat dies, and in his death, another goat lives to carry away sin. Let me ask you, did you die in Christ? Yes or no? Like how? Did a knife get put to you, or did you just order it at a window at Burger King? How did you die in Christ? Did you die in Christ with somebody else's scripted prayer? Did you die in Christ by going, "Uh uh-huh, to somebody else's testimony? Or did you die in Christ as you wrestled, straddling over the sacrifice with the knife in your hand? How did you die in Christ? You have to die. You have to be crucified with Christ if you're going to meet with the Lord. You have to. Then something else happens. This poor goat, the one that is the Az Azel, he is here to bring a different kind of testimony. We're going to start reading in verse 20. In verse 20, it says, When Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting, and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. That's Buford. Say Buford. Buford, Buford is still alive. His buddy Bubba is dead, but he's alive. He's alive because Bubba is dead. Why are you alive? He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sin, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the desert in the care of a man appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a solitary place, and the man shall release it in the desert. Buford is supposed to live forever, bearing your sin. Buford is going to be led out carrying what you were supposed to carry, what you deserved. Let's think on this for a minute. A priest like Matthew comes and puts his hands on the head of this animal. He speaks into its ear the things that you did. Not that Matthew did. 
the porn that you watched. He speaks it into the goat. The unforgiveness that you hold, he speaks it into the goat. The lying about your offerings, he speaks it into the goat. Every time you were disobedient to witness, he puts it on the goat. Now, if you thought it was sad to kill this animal, what is it to make this one carry your sin? You know that time you just thought you'd just do what you wanted to? Well, he's got to carry it now. There's no end for him. It's true that the Jews often killed this animal, but God didn't say to. You know what God said? Appoint a young man. Have him take him out to a solitary place. Why solitary? Because they didn't want your sin to get on anybody else. They didn't want what had been put on that goat to leak off onto anybody else. They didn't want to corrupt any other community. They didn't want to bring some other group of people to its knees because of what you did. So he was supposed to go out into a solitary place. We've been preaching for weeks and weeks and weeks about sin in the house of God. Sin's only supposed to go one direction from the house of God. That's out. It's supposed to leave the house of God. When you come in with it, it's supposed to leave. Have you been sitting in the house of God doing what you want to do? These are beautiful. I like them. My dad, the one that died a week ago, Two weeks ago, two weeks today, we raised these. Bottle fed them. You know when they're little, the word Oz, it, uh, it refers to both the goat and the lamb. It's any four-footed animal that uh, has to be weaned off of milk. That's how it's, it's defined. Were you called to be like the Lamb of God and you've spent your life carrying around so much sin you resemble this poor goat instead? To be honest, I think I'd rather kill him than make him carry it. The other sacrifice is over in a minute. What is this like to condemn this animal for his entire life to be laden with something that was not even supposed to be a part of this creation? There was a great hope in Israel. This was not easy for them to do. There was a scarlet cord that they used to mark the scapegoat. This scarlet cord was just about this long so that it could connect in a circle and make a sort of crown. And they dipped it into the ink that comes from a tola worm. The tola worm is the worm that Jesus said would populate hell. The tola worm is the worm that ate uh, Jonah's stalk that grew up over him. The tola worm is, is a sign of destruction. And when you crush the tola worms, what comes out of them is an, uh, 
indelible ink. It's the closest thing that the ancient world had to a permanent marker. And so they would dip this cord into that stain of sin. They would walk over just like this and they would wrap it around his head, press it into his skull so that if that goat should show up anywhere, you would know exactly what it was and stay away from it. Take this goat out to a solitary place. It turns out that after making the stain on the head of the goat, they would take that cord and they would nail it to the temple door, hang it on the front of the tabernacle. It was a sign, a sign that Israel's sin was being carried. Israel's sin... There was a death that atoned for it and a life that was carrying it away. That cord would hang there. And let's read what it says. How do we know that a crimson colored strap is tied to the head of the goat that is sent to the Azazel? Because it is said, if your sin be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. In Isaiah 1.18... Please turn with me there. We're going to leave on the screen this quote and read Isaiah. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. See, he wants to meet with you. He made a tabernacle in a sanctuary in a place that he could come and meet with you. He says, come now. Not I come to you. Not I go meet you in your house on a Sunday morning in your bedroom. He says, come now. You come to him. You come to the one place on the planet that you're supposed to meet with him called there. The one place that he has told you to be. And you be there at the time that he has called you with the people that he has called you to be with. And he said, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are as red as the crimson stain of a tola worm, is what this means. They will be like wool. They hammered that thing into the temple door when there was a temple and hung it from the tabernacle when there was a tabernacle. And the Jewish tradition says that on the third day, on what day? On the third day, it turned white. Every year, the stain was washed away. What would it be like for you To know for sure that there was a day of reckoning coming. For sure that if this day passed, you could never be a part of God's people again. But on that day, if you were in the right place, at the right time, with the right people, that God himself would wash away your stain and you would never have it. It would be as if it never happened. Would you hate the day? Would you love the day? 
Some will see the day of the Lord as a glorious day and others call it a gloomy and dreadful day. Do you know the difference? It depends on whether or not you plan to be found in sin. Turn with me to John 19. Verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus... And had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns. And put it on his head. Have you ever seen those victor's thorns? They're long. They say that it's seated right into his skull. He was standing there just like Bubba and Buford. Like Buford, in our example, a priest put upon Buford's head the crimson stain of sin. Whose sin was it? Was it the animals? Whose sin was it? It was your sin. To say it's ours, ours is so impersonal. It's like somebody did it, we're not sure who. Whose sin was it? your sin and they pushed that right into his head so that he would have a crimson stain all the way around his crown marked forever the one that is carrying your sin can you imagine that you saw Buford out there in lonely places tomorrow you saw him in the distance And you ran him down and put another brick on him. A few months went by, felt free and light and you were excited, but you decided to send some more. So you went to go hunt in that solitary place for Buford to try to throw another brick on him. Have you ever noticed that when you're in sin, you don't want to come to fellowship? What do you look for? A solitary place. Look, he was only supposed to have to do this once. Once. Are you trying to chase down the scapegoat so that you can throw on him what you neglected to throw on him last time? Christians that live in sin get so twisted. It gets so strange. They drink the rain of heaven, but they only produce more thorns, forever marking the scapegoat. Jesus did this. And he did it fulfilling. He did it on a day of Passover, but he did it fulfilling not just a Passover lamb, but also an Oz Azel. Look at John 19 and verse 14. It was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, Azel, Azel, crucify him. If these are Hebrew people and they're speaking Hebrew, how do you say take away? How do you say get him away, take him away, go away? Azel, Azel, what did he have on his head? But not of gold, a crown of your sin. 
Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king. Boy, they answered rightly, didn't they? When you sin, you are answering the same way today. You are saying, I have no king. Jesus is my Azel. He's the one who takes it away. I don't have a king. I can continue to sin. He is my burden bearer, but he is not my king. The age-old question that the lukewarm, ridiculous church asks is, can he be your Savior without being your Lord? The answer is, hell no. If you take lightly him carrying that for you, how can he be your king? The people cried out, Azel, Azel. And in that moment, they are pronouncing Jesus that sin sacrifice, the Oz, that would Azel carry away their sin. But there were two goats. What happened to the other goat? See, the thing is, is Two goats in one sacrifice was supposed to mean that one would die and one would carry the burden forever. Jesus was both sacrifices. He is the sacrifice that brings the remission of your sin. And he is the sacrifice that carried your sin to the fullest place. When the Jews began this practice, they decided they never wanted to see their sin again. So they deviated from God's word and they put the Az Azel to death. They didn't want uh, a Jew to have to take him out to a solitary place, so they appointed a Gentile to do it. And the Gentile would go way away from the camp. He'd kill the animal. And uh, then the Jews are innocent, right? Because they didn't break God's command. Somebody else broke God's command. They sent it away to a solitary place. That was their, their purpose. And just because they paid that appointed man to kill him doesn't mean that they did it. Are you following me here? Yeah. Pilate was such an appointed man. Judas participated in the same thing. The scheme was to make Jesus the burden bearer and the scapegoat for the nation, but it would make the Romans the executioner. Saints, I would like us to have a king other than Caesar. I believe that Jesus Christ is a king worthy of our obedience. That his sacrifice... was meant to be the last. I want to show you what happened to that scarlet cord around the year 30 AD according to the Babylonian Talmud, Yoma 39b. Our rabbis taught during the last 40 years before the destruction of the temple. By the way, the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. For the Lord did not come in the right hand, nor did the crimson colored strap become white. Nor did the westernmost light shine and the doors of the heckle or temple open by themselves. In other words, what had been happening for centuries stopped around 30 AD. The crimson cord stopped turning white because there was a new 
Az Azel. Could there be a clearer sign? By the way, just so that you know, Babylonian Talmud not written by people who endorse Jesus. Hebrews 9.26 is where we want to draw our attention. But now, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away, to do what? To do away with sin. He didn't come just to forgive your sin. He didn't come just to expiate your sin. He didn't come just to wash your sin. What did he come to do? Do away with sin by the sacrifice of of himself. Jesus was the Passover lamb. Jesus was the atoning goat. Jesus was the scapegoat. Jesus exemplifies every sacrifice that was ever been made. He is the ultimate and he should be the final sacrifice for sin. Are you trying to crown him with thorns still? What do your actions say? I want to show you, as we begin to work towards an ending here, the paleo for Oz Azel. The top, because I didn't want to explain right and left and left and right, the top is an ayin. Then what we see is a zayin, then an alf, then another zayin, then a lamed. The ayin obviously looks like an eye, and it, it usually conveys a meaning to watch or know. The Zion was meant to look like a modex. It's a kind of axe. And it both cut things and it was useful for uh, working with food. It, it was a farming instrument. So sometimes it meant to nourish. The alf is an ox head. It's a strong leader. And the lamed is a shepherd's staff indicating teaching. Az Azel was supposed to be something that you could watch and know the cutting or sacrifice of your strong leader would nourish you and teach you to do differently. That's what was supposed to happen. Have you watched that Az Azel and just loaded more upon him and never stopped sinning? I want to read you something, and then we're going to take communion together. When we're done with communion, we're going to begin to worship. In Corinthians, the 11th chapter, verse 23, For this I received from the Lord, what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread and when he had given it when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me of all the things that that means what do you think that it meant to the goat that died he gave everything that he had 
It's the difference between the chicken sacrificed for breakfast and the pig sacrificed for breakfast. Every time you eat, are you remembering that he gave his all for you and three times, four times a day, you're committing your all for him? Or has it become a light and trivial matter to serve him because after all, he carried away your sin? In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. But let me ask you, is the Lord dead? So he is both the one who died and the one who lives? He is a twofold testimony. You're supposed to be like him. Do you know what you're supposed to be dead to? Sin. Do you know what you're supposed to be alive to? His lordship, his kingship. You go where he goes. You say what he said. Right before we stand to our feet and quickly get communion elements so that we can do this together, I want you to consider one more thing. Every year, for 1,600 years, God showed up to a specific people at a specific time in a prescribed way. Do you know why? He wants to dwell with you. See, he was not unwilling to bridge the gap between heaven and the earth. We were just unwilling to take his efforts seriously. He went through great detail to engage all of your senses, your eyes, your nose, your ears, your heart. He did all of those things because he wanted to get your attention because he wants to dwell with you. What sin could possibly be worth? Losing the right to dwell with God. Not in an eternity somewhere else. We think of heaven somewhere else at the end of our lives. His kingdom is there and is being established here, right now. What is separating you right now? Because the truth is, as difficult as the Day of Atonement was, you know what Israel got to see? They got to watch those goats leave the building. And then they knew they were right with God. What would it feel like tonight if every single member, every child old enough to be accountable for their actions, every member, knew that they had never been more right with God than they are the moment the goat leaves the building. You didn't want to put a knife to the goat. Can you put a knife to your own sin? Can you crucify it with Christ so that we can know? Can you imagine what kind of... It is such a big party, just to be honest. 
It is such a big celebration that they saved it for the sixth in the year because what followed the Day of Atonement was they sacrificed 70 bulls, one for every nation in the world, and they celebrated the whole world getting saved because Israel was right with God. See, if you can get it right, you won't carry around a crown of sin. You'll carry around the king's crown everywhere you go, and at the end of your life, you'll present it back to him. Could you stand to your feet? We're going to take the communion elements. We're going to have the worship team take them with us. So no music, dead silence, introspection time while we get the communion elements. We're going to take the communion in absolute reverence and dead silence, having to consider without emotional aid your community sin, your nation sin, and yours personally. And when the goat leaves the building, we're going to celebrate in a way that catches the rest of the world's attention. Fair enough? Now as quietly as you can, please get the communion elements. The word says, who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servants also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and innocent of great transgression. It's incredible how long and how powerful short silence can be. While we sit here, stand here, ran a message about the most serious of subjects, I recognize that most of the day, while laboring to find goats and put together sermon slides, there was an air of frustration about my day. It's incredible how deceptive sin can be. Went to bed connected with the king in every way. Woke up disconnected from him in a way that I didn't even recognize until I was preaching about our sin and realized it's mine. Saints, the church at Ephesus almost lost its lampstand. And it's not because they gave in to wickedness. It's not because they backed down. It's not because they started doing something awful. It's because somewhere they lost their affection and their connection to the Lord. I've never been a part of a group of believers any more serious than you. Never been more proud of a group of people than you. I've seen extraordinary repentance in the last four or five weeks in lives that I wasn't sure we would ever see it. And yet, every day, we face the fact that the love of most will grow cold. Every day, we face the fact that the first one to miss error in our lives is us. The first one to not see our faults is us. The first one to justify willful sins is us. This meal 
and this day of atonement was intended as an annual reminder, the meal more often than annual, that he was broken so that you'd never have to be disconnected from him again. That was the point. That his life would continue forever as a testimony that your sins had been carried away. That was the point. That's why he's all of those sacrifices. Tonight, when we take this bread, take your little cracker and break it. Crunch it. Let that be a symbol of breaking you away from anything that is keeping you from being fully devoted to him. And now let's eat it. Let's ingest that very idea. Tonight as we hold up this cup, hold it up before the Lord. Let's let this cup be a testimony tonight that one lives because he carried away our sin. And we will drink this cup with him in a perfected kingdom on the earth because we have chosen to have him perfect us now. That's what he's doing. He's not being mean to us. He's not beating us. He's not giving us hard words. He's perfecting us so that we will be among those that make it. So we raise his cup back to him. We say, Lord, we will accept your perfection. Lord, we will work as you work. We will say what you say. Mighty God, your grace will work in us and it will not be without effect. We raise your cup back to you and we join you in it, saying we will join you at the feast of the Lamb. We will not be denied. You may drink your cup. So often, you don't have to get fascinated with doing anything with your cups right now. Don't do it. We are creatures of habit. Don't lose this moment. Don't get distracted from anything else. What you should be feeling like right now, this second, is that you just saw that goat with a crown of your sin disappear from sight. And no matter how hard you ran after it, no matter what you thought, you would never find him again because it was placed as far as the east is from the west. And you were now as right with God as a man or woman can be right with God. Now live in that for a second. What does that feel like? To have no encumbrance upon you. To have no chain upon you. To have no thought of failure because it's not going to happen. To have no stain of sin because it's gone. What is it like when the goat leaves the building? What is it like to have a people who stand right before their God? Oh, saints, is that not a good feeling? Hallelujah!